1 Samuel chapter 4. And I've, I've called the message God's road trip. God goes on the move in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and I think it's really interesting what he gets up to when he's on the move and also where he ends up. I think this is a fascinating Old Testament story. Um, let's just read a few verses from the start of chapter 4, the first four verses to give us a, a background to launch from. Really help if you have a Bible or a phone that's in do not disturb mode or something that you can look at these verses. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit, starting off in 1 Samuel 4 and 5, and then we're going to pull in a few things from the Psalms. This is one of those things in the scriptures that you can't really see it just by reading two or three consecutive chapters. It comes together as you look uh, in, in various different places. But let's start off with chapter 4 and about halfway through verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Ephek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for your word. And I ask this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place and that your word would be driven deep into our hearts, Lord, that it would bring life to us, encourage us in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. Business as usual for that time or that period of history. They had been squabbling for about 200 years and they would squabble for about another 300 after this. They did not get on. And the Philistines were quite advanced. The Philistines had iron and they knew how to work with iron and how to make weapons out of iron. So they were a technologically advanced enemy back in those days. They had five principal cities that we'll see a little bit later on. Cities like Ashdod and Gath and Ekron were principal cities of the region known as Philistia. And each city had its own king or its own lord. And interestingly enough, archaeologists have reported that whenever they dig in Philistine settlements, the thing they find most often is the beer jug. These guys knew how to fight and they knew how to drink beer, lots of it. That is the most frequently found artifact in Philistine uh, excavations. Now, in chapter 4, verse 2, they're battling and 4,000 Israelite soldiers are killed. And they go back to base trying to figure out what has happened. Why did God allow us to be defeated? They knew that God had let it happen. 
They did not go back and say, well, we were inferior in, in this way or that way. They knew that the fact they had been defeated, something was wrong. And to give you a little bit of the background without going too far back, the thing that was wrong was called Eli, and he had two sons called Hopni and Phinehas who were wrong as well. And they were corrupt priests in the tabernacle of God. They were taking advantage of people. They were stealing from them. They were mistreating them. Eli did not deal with his two sons, and his two sons were two very wicked, evil men. And they were the problem. And that corrupt religious system that they were governing over was the problem. And that's why God allowed defeat upon his people. But the mistake that the leaders make when they go back and talk about what's gone wrong, why have we lost this battle? The mistake they made was they did not call the people to repentance. They should have said there is sin in this nation. There are problems in the, in the leadership. There are problems at the temple and call people to repentance but they did not do it. What they decided to do was to bring the ark to the battlefield. Now, this ark of the covenant is a, an interesting piece of kit. It's small. It would fit in the boot of a decent hatchback. It's about four feet long. Cross section is about two foot square, covered in gold. On the lid, there are two cherubim. Those are angels. And in between them, there's a thing called a mercy seat. Inside the ark, there's the commandments, there's the pot of manna, and there's Aaron's rod. And the ark resided in the tabernacle at Shiloh in the most holy place, Moses' tabernacle. And they thought that if we bring the ark to the battlefield, God will strike down <coughs> his enemies. And they were right if we bring the ark to the battlefield, God will strike down his enemies. Because as you saw in verse 4, as I read it, it says that it describes the ark as the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. In other words, they viewed, the people of Israel viewed God as sitting on the top of the ark in between the cherubim. That was what they saw as being the location of God's presence on earth. They knew God was everywhere. They knew he was all around them. But they saw this as being the particular location of the presence of God. Hence it sat in the most holy place in the temple and the high priest only went in once a year to bring blood as an offering for the sin of the nation. They saw it as the locality of the presence of God. And they thought, well, bring this to the battlefield. They maybe thought back to Jericho in the time of Joshua, whenever the ark was carried around Jericho six days and then seven times on the seventh day and there was a big shout and the walls came down. And they thought, well, bring the ark and it'll happen again. They basically treated the presence of God as a good luck charm. We will bring him along and it'll all work out just fine. Just rub the box and out comes the genie God and delivers his people. And some people still would treat God like that. They feel that if I just wheel God into anything, he will strike out against everyone except me. <laughs> he, will, he will just be my secret weapon, my nuclear button. I bring God in and he strikes out against his enemies. And what we have here is a scene at the end of verse 4 where the ark is being brought to the battlefield and Hophni and Phinehas 
are with it. We, we, we've sang a song this last few weeks, and we'll probably sing it again today, inevitably. Um, because I, I keep saying, if you do a new song, keep doing it. Don't do it once and then you know, keep on hammering it into them until they get it. And uh, there's a line in it that says, heaven comes to fight for me. Heaven comes to fight for you when you are fighting the right battles. You start your own little battles. Don't ask heaven to come and fight for you. All right? Bear that in mind as we sing. That's truth and we'll sing truth. Heaven comes to fight for the people of God as they fight the battles that God wants them to fight. All right? You point the gun in one direction only. At Satan. At Satan. He's the only enemy that we have. Heaven comes to fight for us when we're fighting the battles that God has called us to fight. And we heard earlier, brilliantly, well-timed, all this talk from the Old Testament of how God fights for his people. So it's a powerful scene. And to, to sum up what goes on in verses 5 to 9, the ark's brought to the battlefield. There's a big shout. The Philistines initially get a little bit scared. They hear the Israelites shouting. They see the ark and they, they think, a God has come onto the battlefield. We're toast. We're finished. It's over. This is, we've heard about the gods of the Israelites who wiped out Egypt. I think it's really interesting. In verse 8, the Philistines refer to the gods of Israel. Israel's idolatry was so rampant that the surrounding nations thought they had multiple gods. They did not realize that Israel only had one God. And they think they're finished because God or this, this, this God or these gods have come into the battle. But then they start to stir each other up. The Philistines give us a lesson in encouragement. And they say in verse, verse 9, Be strong, Philistines. Be men. Fight, or you will be subject to the Hebrews. You know, folks, when we, when we fight battles that are not the battles that God has called us to fight, the enemy is the one who starts to get stoked up and starts to get more fight in him. Not God's people. If we're fighting the wrong battles, we're actually in some sort of a way, we're all, almost giving power and encouragement and strength to the enemy when we fight the wrong battles. But the Philistines get all stoked up. And in verse 10, it says they fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Now this is a tragic verse, verse 11. A tragic verse. The ark of God was captured. That's bleak. That is as bad as it gets for Israel in the Old Testament. The ark of God captured. Carried off by pagans. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Whenever the presence of God is brought to the battle, he strikes out against his enemies. The awful mistake that Hophni and Phinehas made was they didn't realize they were God's enemies. The priests in the tabernacle, the way they were leading, abusing, mistreating, taking advantage of people, they were actually the enemies of God. 
So on one level, they were exactly right. God will strike out against his enemies. But sorry, guys, that's you. <laughs> that's you. You are his enemies in all of this. The rest of chapter 4 shows the depth of the tragedy of the ark being captured. Eli's daughter-in-law gives birth to a son and before she passes away herself, she calls the child Ichabod, meaning the glory is gone. Eli himself, when he hears about his two sons having died, he doesn't seem to be that bothered. (laughs) But when he hears that the ark is gone, he falls over off the chair he was sitting on, his neck breaks and he dies. This is a bleak scene in the history of Israel. And if we read this wrongly, we almost think, poor God, sitting on top of the box and the box got carried away. This picture almost of God sitting there with the Philistines carrying the ark and him looking around, powerless to do anything about it. (laughs) But God knows what he's up to. And we'll see later on as we get to a close, we'll see exactly what he's up to. And he was very intentional about what he was doing. But in chapter 5, verse 1, I want you to see where the ark ends up. It says in verse 1, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That's one of their five cities. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and they set it beside Dagon. Now what you did in ancient warfare was, whenever you defeated another people, You took the image of their God from their temple and you brought it to the temple of your God and you set it at the feet of your God as if to say, our God is bigger than your God. It was like a trophy. And whenever the Philistines defeated the Israelites, they could not find an image of God because they didn't realize that mankind is made in the image of God. So they couldn't find a little statue to take, so they took the box. They took the ark. They said, this is the closest thing these people seem to have to an idol, to an image. We're going to bring that, and we're going to set it at the feet of Dagon. And their secret weapon now becomes our secret weapon. And we set it in a place that shows that our God is bigger than their God. You know that playground talk, my dad's bigger than your dad type thing. That's the sort of thinking they had. So I find this picture of Dagon. There he is. Um, Google images always can be trusted for pictures of ancient gods. Uh, Dagon was half man, half fish. And that is a standard Dagon pose. <laughs> Every picture you find of the lad, he's, he's like that. It reminded me of Theresa May the day she was dancing. Just that <laughs> awkward hands. So I think challenge for the kids this week is to forget the floss and forget the Fortnite dances and, and do the Dagon. Learn how to... Learn how to do the Dagon. God is at the feet of Dagon, as far as the Philistines were concerned. They bring him in, they put him in the temple, and they do, the priests do whatever, you know, whatever they do in the evening in Dagon's temple, sweep the floor, light the candles, make sure everything's clean and tidy. And then they go out of the the temple and they close the door. Now let your imagination just run all over the place. When you're reading the Bible, make movies. Make movies. Um, So you've got this big statue, half man, half fish, Dagon. Dagon was actually the father of Baal, 
in, in the way the ancient gods were understood, Baal was Dagon's son. Dagon is there up on his big platform, massive and imposing and great. And the box is on the floor in the dust at his feet or at his tail or whatever, whatever the case may be. And the door's closed and away they go. The next morning in verse 5, they come back. And it says in, or in chapter 5, verse 3, it says, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, on the ground, before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. So they come in the next morning, and their great God is on the floor, with his face in the dust beside the ark. The ark hasn't moved, it's just sitting there, smiling, if an ark can smile. Dagon on the floor, and they come in, and they're in a whole flap about Dagon on the floor. Can I tell you something, folks? Idolatry cannot stand the presence of God. Idolatry cannot stand the presence of God. And if we have idols in our lives that we tolerate, that we allow to stand imposing over us, there is a warning light flashing saying there is not enough prominence given to the presence of God in your life. Because if there was, that idol would be down. Idols do not stand in the presence of God. Do you have a life that cultivates the presence of God? Craves after his presence. Clears space for his presence. To be with him. Both on your own and with others. Because in that culture and in that environment, idols fall. And what, what the writer of Samuel does, and it wasn't Samuel by the way, just in case you're wondering, Samuel dies during the book. He didn't write it. It was probably Ezra that wrote it. What the writer does is really quite brilliant because he absolutely mocks the Philistines for all he's fit. This is one of the funniest chapters in the Old Testament. Hebrews have a great sense of humor and they love to mock people. I don't really like mockery. I don't find it a, a sort of a, a type of humor that I enjoy. <laughs> I just don't like getting mocked, maybe. But uh, Hebrews were good at mocking people. And God himself mocks his enemies. And it says at the end of verse 3, again, picture the scene. You've got these priests in Dagon's temple. Dagon's on the ground. And they go and they stand him up again. They dust him off. And they maybe use some ropes or some pegs around his, his, his tail to, to keep him upright. It's a comical scene. Your great God has fallen and look at you running around after him, standing him up again. What sort of God is this that you serve? What can he, he can't even stand up overnight when you put a box beside him. What sort of idol is this that is ruling in your hearts and in your lives? So they clean the place up again in the, on the, the second day after that first night that Dagon has fallen they put him back up, clean up, light the candles, sweep the floor. Everything's, everything's in place. And they go out and they close the door. And if a box can smile, the box is smiling again. It's just you and me, buddy. They're all gone. It's just you and me. <laughs> and Dagon, if a half man, half fish statue made of stone can tremble... He's trembling. 
He can't speak because idols can't speak by their very nature. Their hearts are made of stone and their lips are made of stone. They cannot speak. God mocks them plenty of places in the scripture at their inability to communicate. But I'm sure if Dagon had any mind to think or whatever demon, demon was behind him had any mind to think, he would have been looking at that door closing and thinking, don't leave me. <laughs> don't leave me again with the box. <laughs> Not another night with the box. And the next morning they come back. This is now the third day. Back they come and they open up the door and the light, daylight goes into the, into the temple of Dagon. And there he is, down again. <laughs> and the box has got a look on its face. That look when you walk into a room where you've heard a smash and there's something broken on the floor and there's a child with a look in his face to say, it wasn't me, <laughs> you know. I didn't do anything. I just sat here the whole time. Didn't move. Dagon's down. In verse 4, fallen on his face on the ark or on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time there's something different. His head and his hands are cut off. And you think, well, statue has fallen and it's made of stone. It's just cracked. It has not just cracked. <laughs> it is not just cracked. Because in ancient warfare, what you did with your enemies was once you captured somebody, pretty brutal, you just cut their hands off. Because your hands were what you used to do warfare. Your hand held the sword, held the bow, held the arrow, held the spear, held the shield. It was your hands that you fought with. And without your hands, you were powerless. So you capture your enemy, you take off his hands. You render him powerless. Even my dog knows that your hands are the things that do, do something. Whenever she wants my attention, she comes and she just starts scratching at my hands. She knows the hands open the door. She knows the hands get the treats and hold the treats down. It's the hands that she always goes for. And in ancient warfare, you took off the hands and you were basically saying to your enemy, you're finished. You have no more power. Now, not only were the hands off, but it gets more gruesome still. The head is off. Decapitation. Not just a stress fracture somewhere in the statue. Dagon is decapitated. Completely and utterly finished in the presence of God. He will no longer stand and be a threat against the people of God. It's a foreshadowing of what Goliath would, would meet as his end whenever David would stand before Goliath and kill him and take off his head. Yahweh, God of Israel, completely devastates Dagon. Hands off, head off, dead. And then the Philistines get mocked again because look how stupid they are in verse 5. It's, it says at the end of verse 4, his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold at the door. So picture the scene again. Down he comes, head is off, and the head rolls along and bangs against the bottom of the door and stops there. And then when the Philistines come in the next morning, they then say, this door is a holy place. Verse 5. To this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter his temple step on the threshold. 
And you see the stupidity of it. It's like they walk to the door and they say, oh, look, there is the decapitated head of our defeated God. It has rolled along the floor and hit the door. The door will now be a holy place. They're so stupid. Because <laughs> idolatry makes people stupid. God uses weak and foolish things. He doesn't use stupid things. Idolatry makes people stupid. Causes them to say things that are foolish, that do not make any sense. And these guys are going to start making the doorway a holy place because that's where his old decapitated head stopped rolling about on the floor. Comical. But I wonder, does it sound familiar? Because if you pretend that the battle, we don't know what day the battle was on when the ark was captured, but let's say it was a Friday. The ark is captured on Friday, taken from the people of Israel and carried into the temple of the enemy on Friday and the door closed. And one night passes and on Saturday the enemy is on the ground. And another night passes and on Sunday morning the enemy is on the ground, decapitated and his hands cut off finished. Friday, the presence of God goes into the temple of the enemy. Sunday morning, the presence of God comes out and the enemy is completely and utterly defeated church. Does it sound familiar? Because it should sound familiar. Three days, two nights in the tomb and when Jesus comes out, you better believe that Satan's power is finished over the people of God. You better believe it, that he is decapitated. <coughs> he is thrashing about in his last bid for life, but he is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe. And this picture of the ark, the presence of God, going into the temple of the enemy and absolutely wrecking the place and then coming out again is a picture of Jesus, death and resurrection. And I can tell you there's very few things more satisfying to me when I read the Word of God than when I see Jesus, particularly in the Old Testament. I love it. I see him in this picture so clearly. I see him in Samson, even Samson, when he stands with his hands out like Jesus on the cross and in his death brings it all down on his enemies. Powerful. Powerful. God then goes on tour in the rest of chapter 5. It's ridiculous. It says in, in verse 6, The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. <laughs> Mocking overload. What has just been cut off Dagon? His hands. And seven times in the next two chapters, we read about the hand of God. It's just comical. The hand of God was heavy upon them. The hand of God was heavy upon them. What about Dagon's hands? Oh, no, well, they weren't really doing much at this stage. The hand of God was heavy upon them. And in the city of Ashdod, the presence of the ark in this city causes an outbreak of sickness and general devastation and wrecking. And the Philistines, because they're idolaters, they're stupid. And idolaters make stupid decisions. So they come together and they decide, what will we do with this box? 
because it's causing the people in our city to get sick. And they come to a decision in verse Verse 8, they called together the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? Now think of how dumb these guys are because Ashdod is one of their chief cities. The presence of the ark in Ashdod is causing people to get sick. And they get together and decide what to do and they move it to Gath, which is another one of their chief chief cities. That's like... Something in London is causing an outbreak of plague and sickness and disease in London. And the Cobra Committee of the government get together and say, what shall we do? I know, let's move it to Birmingham. And then it causes wrecking all around the place in Birmingham. And they get together again and they say, what do we do with it now? It's causing sickness in Birmingham. Let's bring it to Manchester. And they bring it to another one of their cities. And that's what happens in the rest of this chapter. The Philistines literally carry the ark from city to city. And God just wrecks all around them. You can almost imagine t-shirts being printed with the date that he was in a city. And what he did as he went on tour. With these stupid Philistines carrying him around. It's madness. You read chapter 4 and you think, oh, poor God carried into the, away into the presence of the enemy. Like, no, no, no. God's going on tour. <laughs> God's going on tour. And it, it's like a victory tour. When, you, when, when a sports team win a victory, win a trophy, and they then get an open-top bus and they go off around cities and towns and they show it all off. That's what God's doing. He's laughing at them. Psalm 2 verse 4 says about the one who sits in the heavens laughing at his enemies. He's having a blast. Having a blast going around and, and, and lashing out against them. In chapter 6, the ark, they finally decide the best thing to do might be to get rid of it. And they send the ark back to Israel. And again, they're laughed at because they send it on a cart with a couple of cows pulling the cart. And in their stupidity, they have provided a sacrifice. And as soon as the cart and the ark and the cows get back to Israel, the cart gets chopped up, the cows get sacrificed, and they have a party. Stupid Philistines. Idolatry makes people very dim. And the ark sits in a place called Kiriath-Jerim for at least 20 years. Now, During that time, here's the sad thing. There's still a tabernacle of Moses at Shiloh where the ark was brought out of on that battle day. There's still a tabernacle there. There's still priests in it. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still going through the motions. But God isn't there. He's not there. Still going through the rigmarole every day, every week, going through the motions, showing up at the tabernacle, doing their thing, coming back. God is not there. What would you do if you found an ark? Go to First Chronicles, please, chapter 16, and we're getting near the end. And if you have the, well, First Chronicles 16 is grand. I'm going to go to, to Psalms as well. Chapter 
There's another character on the pages of the book of Samuel. And believe it or not, I love him. His name's David. It's a good name. Yeah. And David, when he comes on the scene, he has a priority. And he writes about the priority in Psalm 132, part of which is on the screen. Let me read a few verses from Psalm 132. Do you see what was top priority for David when he became king? O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord. A dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jair. That means Kiriath Jerim. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. David determined he was going to get the ark. It had been missing from Israelite life for decades. And David determined he was going to get it. That was going to be his priority. He wasn't going to sleep or slumber or rest until he got the ark and found somewhere to put the ark. He didn't celebrate becoming king and he didn't celebrate um, taking Jerusalem. But whenever he got the ark, he worshipped so passionately that Mrs. David got really angry with him and started slobbering at him about the way he worshipped. David, too exuberant. David, too, too much, too undignified the way you whirled about and danced today before the ark of the Lord. He celebrated with passion. But where would you put the ark if you found it? You know, if you're rummaging about doing a clear out in the attic and you found the ark of the covenant, where would you put it? Surely you would go back to the tabernacle of Moses. Because you've got the book of Exodus and you've got all the plans for the tabernacle and you've the plans for the ark and you've got where the ark should be and what should be done to it. Surely that's where you would put it. But David didn't do that. That is an incredibly audacious thing to do. David decided the ark is going somewhere else. David saw something that was a thousand years in the future, but David saw it. And I want you to listen to me and give me all you got. David saw something. Somehow he realized that a massive change was taking place. What did he see? What did he see? I believe that people who make it their priority and their practice to worship God see things. That God gives his heart to worshipers. Now please don't think that I mean that you have to worship in a certain physical posture or in any particular way. I don't mean that. What I mean is when a heart is directed to God in praise and in worship, God reveals his heart to people who
who praise him. David was a worshipper. He was worshipper number one on the pages of scripture. He wrote a very long hymn book called the Psalms. He was a worshipper and he saw something in the heart of God that caused him to do something different with the ark when he got it. It says in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 1, They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. David put up a new tent. David, you're a bold boy. That ark belongs in the tabernacle of Moses. What are you doing, David? Putting it in a different tent. It's an interesting tent. There's no veil in it. David saw something. That wasn't going to happen for a thousand years, but David saw it. He saw a place where the presence of God was and there was no veil. Not only was there no veil in this tent that David put up, there was no blood. The sacrifices and the offerings in this tent of David's are not blood offerings and they are not for sin. They are offerings of praise. They are offerings of thanksgiving. Look at verses 4 to 6 of 1 Chronicles 16. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to make petition to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Look on towards the end of verse 5. There's a list of names and then it says these guys were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Beniah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. David's tent was a house of praise. Moses' tabernacle was a house of blood, where sin offerings were brought to God. Blood was put on the mercy seat of the Ark, and sin was regularly atoned for in that way. But David knows something has changed. When the ark came out of the tabernacle and went into the temple of the enemy for three days and defeated the enemy and came back out the other side, something has changed. And God is not going back to a house of blood. He is going to a house of praise. And David saw that. That's why David put up this new tent. Look at, well, just look at the screen because 1 Chronicles 23 verse 5 is up here. 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I have provided for that purpose. Wow. Wow. This is a house of praise. David knows where the presence of God will be found. In a house of praise. 4,000 people praising with the musical instruments that have been provided. Further on in First Chronicles 25, describing the tent again. It speaks about those who are accompanied by harps, lyres and cymbals. That they're trained and skilled in music for the Lord. There were 288. There were 24 teams. If you read the rest of that chapter, there were 24 worship teams with 12 people on each team. And they worshipped, get this, they worshipped 24 hours a day for 40 years. 
in that tent, David saw something. When God has come from the house of blood and when he's gone through the temple of his enemy and wrecked it and left his enemy decapitated and powerless with his hands cut off, when he comes out the other side, things have changed. It will not be like it was before. It will not be like it was before. God will be found now in a house of praise. And there can never be enough of it. (laughs) And we talk about earlier about how that presence brought down the idol. How that presence brought down and decapitated the enemy. Praise him as much as you can. You can never get enough of it. Don't let your daily routine with God only be reading a chapter or two and praying for, for yourself and a bunch of other people. Please don't hear me saying that those things are not important because I'm not saying that. But make sure part of that routine is praise, adoration, worshipping him. Come here together to worship him because his presence is found in that atmosphere and idols fall. And I don't want idols in my life. And I don't want the enemy in my life. But when I'm in a place of praise, the presence of God deals with those things and fights those battles. David saw it. When Jesus went into that temple of the enemy, death, and dealt with them and came out the other side on the third day, nothing would ever be the same again. (laughs) Nothing would ever be the same again. No more blood. Bring praise. Bring offerings of praise. Bring thanksgiving. Bring worship to him. And again, during all that 40 years, as far as I'm aware, back in the tabernacle of Moses, they're still going through the routine. And in the tent of David, you know. And you know what? In any, people sometimes criticize praise and, and they, you know, they, they look at a, maybe a large praise event and they say, oh, all those people there aren't following God. Some of them are just getting carried along in the emotion. Yes, <laughs> put, put a huge number of people together and, and put that out. There's going to be people in the room who aren't right with God. There are going to be people in the room who are there maybe for the wrong reasons, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right. And let's not criticize whenever a bunch of people get together to praise God as if it's a bad thing. It's where his presence is found in the new covenant. In Psalm 78, and I'm nearly done, you've listened well, but this is important. In Psalm 78, God recounts what happened in this whole episode. And it's brilliant. A few verses up on the screen, but I want want to read about 10 verses from Psalm 78 for you. Starting at verse 58. This is the overview of everything that I've done today. Psalm 78, verse 58. Get yourself back to 1 Samuel 4 in your mind and the corrupt priesthood that God's ark then left. It says in verse 58, they angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was very angry. He rejected Israel completely. Now listen to this and don't be thinking that poor God was carried away on a box. 
He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh. The tent he had set up among men. God abandoned the tabernacle. Verse 61. He sent the ark of his mate into captivity. His splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was very angry with his inheritance. Verse 65. Then the Lord awoke. Think of the ark in Dagon's temple. Think of Jesus in the tomb. Come on. Let the Holy Spirit stir all this powerful imagery up in your mind. Verse 65. Then the Lord awoke from sleep. As from sleep. As a man wakes from the stupor of wine, he beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. That's the tabernacle. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Verse 68, but he chose the tribe of Judah, the house of praise. I'm not going back. to the tabernacle. I'm not going back to the blood. I'm not going back to the religion. I'm not going back to people whose lives are marked by sin and dragging animals up here to kill them to pay for sin. I'm not going back. I'm going to a house of praise. Because in the in-between three days in that temple, sin was dealt with once and for all. And it's different now. It's different now. God's people praise him and his presence is found there. And I have one last scripture because I think you've got it. But Acts 15. And I really am done. I'm so done that Aaron, you can come forward if you're ready. Acts 15. There's a dispute in Acts chapter 15 because some Gentiles are getting born again. And the Jewish Christians aren't quite sure what to do with them. And they get together and listen to the apostles. And first of all, round about verse 6 and following, Peter gets up. And Peter explains his vision. And he explains how the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles and says, These guys are in. (laughs) They've got the Holy Ghost just the same way we have. They're in. And then Paul and Barnabas in verse 12 and beyond, they make their claim as well as to how signs and wonders prove that the Gentiles are in. And then James gets up and James gets his Bible and he opens up his Bible and he says, brothers, listen to me. Verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. Now listen to what Amos the prophet said, quoted by James in Acts 15, the words of God, after this I will return and rebuild Moses' tabernacle, the house of blood, the house of sin offerings. Is that what God is rebuilding? No, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. God is building a house of praise, a people of praise where his presence will be found. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. One of the most powerful things that I believe God spoke to Linda and I about five years ago or maybe six now about this, a phrase that you've heard me say over and over again, one of those moments, and I say this with great caution, Because I don't like to be careless and I don't like it when anyone is careless about saying 
I believe God has said something. It's a weighty thing to say. But I believe God said to us, build me a worshipping community. That's your task for the rest of your life. (laughs) Build me a worshipping community. God is rebuilding the house of praise, the tent of David. That's where he'll be found. I've gone 10 minutes longer than usual and I'm sorry. But great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Let's worship him. Amen.